Hi, this is Tim J. Smith, and you're listening to Sassholes. Welcome to Sassholes, the podcast, a show dedicated to issues, mistakes, errors that uh, in the SaaS environment, software as a service, where Pete, Jamie, and Jason, who is absent today, um, have a combined 100 years of making all these errors and are more than happy to share them with you on this podcast. Hopefully you can learn from us. Um, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, today we are joined by a very special guest, guest, Mr. Timothy Smith from Wiglaf Pricing. Um, Wiglaf Pricing, author of Pricing Strategy, Setting Pricing Levels, Managing Price Discounts, and Establishing Price Structures. Um, before we get into that, we do have an ad, but I also wanted to say, and I just said this before we were on, for those of you that have worked closely with me in the last uh, five, six years, they know that I carried this book around with me. Um, I use a lot of its um, portions within the book uh, to argue, so does Pete, because I think Pete introduced it to me. Um, so we're really excited to have Tim on today. Now, let's get into the ad. Ad, uh, today we have to pay for the show by what we usually get paid for our sponsor. This episode was brought to you by NeuroNoodle. Get a doodle of your noodle today, which is a brain map, and find out how you can get rid of anxiety, depression, panic attacks, uh, ADHD, all of those things without drugs. Use, uh, use a... Uh, Visit NeuroNoodle.com today to figure out why. Tell them this asshole sent you get 50% off your first consultation. And go ahead, Pete. If it's Jamie that sent you, you have to pay more. It's 5% off. 5% off. All right, now for the joke of the day. Yes, Pete. Arnie. Yes, Pete. I once had a dream. I was floating in an ocean of orange soda. It was more of a fantasy. Leave us... (laughs) Leave us some Tim, comments. Don't, don't on laugh the at these things. Don't laugh at these things. At sassholes.net. Please, five stars. Because we, we can't help if nobody's listening. Yeah. yeah. Shout outs. And Shout that's outs. not going to get anyone to listen. Hey, how about, hey, hey, Karnak. Literally, Karnak. Yes. How about, John, how about that Johnny Carson episode? Yeah. Do it. See if you can remember it. Uh, what is Shish Boomba? What, what is Shish Boomba? The word, the sound a, a lamb makes when he's getting blown up. It was a lot funnier when Carney. It was. Connected. It was, yeah. and it was funny thirty years ago, Pete, when it was done. <laughs> we'll make, we'll we'll put in the lap track. Joe's really lacking without Ferrara here. I wonder where he is. I'm sure he'll tell us. Uh, shout out, Travis Coppins joined Upwork. Way to go, Mr. Coppins. I want to say we hired him a couple decades ago off the street, worked his way up, and now he's making the bank at Upwork. Way to go, Cobbins. I got a couple shout outs, Pete. Um, yeah. Melissa Maloney, she was promoted to group product manager at Relativity. So congrats to her. Congrats to uh, Sean Sweeney. He looks like he just started up as CEO. It's in stealth mode right now. Uh, he's going to announce it here soon. Um, also, a shout out to our other, our other sasshole, uh, Jason Ferrara. Uh, no news yet, but it sounds like news is on the way. I don't know if he's made it public to everyone. So, uh, don't congrats jinx it, to him. Don't jinx it. Knock on wood. God, God go. forbid they do the background check and they look up they, this show. They find out we're there. Yeah. 
Um, All right, news, jobs, anything? Uh, do you have any news? I mean, I don't know. Uh, people are more people unemployed. Next, yeah, seven hundred thousand. Yeah, it's just the same old rehash. Everyone hates the president just like they hated the other president, and half the right. people love the president just like the other half love the other president. Fast so. forward and rewind. All right, let's go. All right, so let's let's get into our special guest. So we're going to have a conversation with Tim Smith. Tim, you're already on. So why don't you give a little background of who you are and what you came to be and how you came about uh, understanding pricing the way you do. Well, I'm the founder and CEO of Wiglaf Pricing, and I teach pricing at DePaul University. Um, you know, these are my jobs. I've yep. written a book called Pricing Strategy, uh, how, how to set prices, manage price variances and establish price structures. Another book called Pricing Done Right, how to organize your team. That's, you know, accomplishments, but we can go further as you, as you lead. I, so I've read your book. Um, a lot of what you are, uh, your book is geared towards is, is more like widgets and, and you know, selling types of, of like tangible items and things like that. And where I came from was more like vaporware, right? And, and, I'm, and we're in software now. How, you know, there's, there's multiple different pricing models that you can, or pricing attacks you can take from a, a vaporware or software product. How would you go about if you were thrown to keys and said, price this out, this new, this new software out? I know that's a loaded question. But what are the different strategies you can deploy uh, in terms of pricing? Uh, first, I, I get that question a lot, and that's yeah. actually part of what we do. Um, the, the first step is understand the value on the table. What are you doing for that customer? Why does that make that customer's life better, easier? How do you save that company, most SaaS is B2B, time, money, improve their revenue, reduce their cost, reduce some sort of risk? and running their business and convert those statements of value into a word problem, which are then quantified with inputs and you start to calculate the economic value to the customer. Show me the money, show me what yeah. you're worth. Um, from that economic value to the customer, then you need to start saying, how does that vary between my customer segments? I mean, two customers are different. How does the value I'm delivering vary between those two different customers? How do I see, envision the market segmentation unveiling? At this point, we understand the value per segment. Now comes the harder question. How do I then capture my value, my fair share of that value I'm delivering in the form of price? And that's where the different price structures covered in the latter half of my textbook come in. Am I going to do, and there's basically nine different structures. Am I going to do unit pricing, add-on add pricing, versioning, bundling, two-part tariff, tying arrangements? Uh, yes, in a SaaS model, but what does that actually come out? What is the metric I'm going to use? Is it square footage or is it a, uh, like in a retail environment or is it a number of employees or number of users? Uh, you know, you can be more creative in this. Number of residential properties within a metro area. That also works sometimes. And finally, there's revenue management like what you see in the airlines. And then one other one that works in weird markets, pay what you want. It actually works. 
in weird markets. So you got to choose that structure according to the value you're delivering and the cost to deliver in a manner which enables the company to extract the maximum profit from that market. So here's a question, rate cards. Competitors yeah. a lot of times don't publish rate cards, right? No. So if you're entering a space that you don't know what your competitors are bidding on, right? How do you how do you go about marketing that, especially in a new space? I think when you get to a certain maturity level, your own data is your market guide. But when you're a newer company, um, you know, it's kind of difficult that you might have lost that bid and then realize you lost that bid because it was 10 times more expensive than anyone else and you were completely oblivious to it. One of the problems that people have coming from the consumer packaged goods background or a fast-moving consumer packaged goods background into a B2B market is that suddenly they don't have scanner data about the retail sales. Suddenly, they don't actually know the prices of anything. Mm -hmm. And you can, in a B2B market, you can ask your salespeople to try to tell you what they think that price is, hire somebody from the competitor and ask them, you know, how are you pricing? But that data you're going to get is always going to be uncertain, questionable, dubious. Not bad. It's a fact, but it's not a reliable fact. And what I talk about sometimes is, you have to assemble a bunch of facts into an information mosaic from which an intelligence and hand, uh, assessment can be made to understand where you think the competitor is. Now, from a market research viewpoint, uh, the one legal way you can do this in the States is you actually just ask the customers, how much did they pay for this? And you know the customers aren't going to tell you exactly the yeah. right answer. But that is the legal way that you can find out your competitor's information. If you call them or if you ask a customer, a a consultant to call them, that's called price collusion. And somebody goes to jail. I don't want to be that person. I'm lazy. I think it's fascinating. If you ask a sales rep, right? Let's let's go through your list. If you ask a sales rep, a sales rep's incentivized to price it as low as possible because they know – the, the the corporate uh, overseeing team is going to be checking on discounts mm-hmm. and things of that nature. Um, so they're going to have a difficulty on always pricing something higher because they want to be able to price it however they want and oversell it if possible and get praise for selling a $100 thing for $500 and act like they're a hero when the market's really $500. Um, and then the same goes for the customer, right? If you call the customer, the customer is not incentivized to tell you, I should pay a million dollars for this. So there's a 500,000 work, you know, they're going to always be incentivized low. So I think it's always, it's always interesting. I think pricing is such a strategic portion of the business that I feel like it's an afterthought in a lot of companies um, because they just trust what the salespeople sell it for. And they don't realize that the salespeople could be underselling the value. And, and a lot of them, especially in the vapor and, and software business, don't really understand the costs associated with, with the products that they're selling. And so sometimes they're just bolting on something and not realizing that they're losing money on that bolt on and making money on that. It, it's fascinating. I know you, you're dealing with this all the time, but what insight do you think to get down to true pricing and knowing that those are the different guises that are out there? Um, how do you go about attacking that problem? Uh, like as complicated as it is. 
So a couple of problems there. One is, is the accuracy of the input information is always questionable. Yeah. It, it always is. Uh, and I mentioned you, you're going to try to put together the what you think is truth by looking at the same question from multiple angles, from multiple data sources. Sometimes financial reports are useful, for instance. Resellers sometimes. And then comes the question, are you an entrepreneur or a big corporation? If you're an entrepreneur starting on a new business, my simple advice is price as high as you think you can get. Go down yeah. from there. If you're a large corporate business, you're probably going to go after market share. And there'll probably be some bit more benchmarks out there in the market. So it's not as fraught with complete uncertainty about what's going on. You can always go down rather than go up, right? I mean, yeah, I tell that to people and they still say, oh, but we want to make a big splash and make our more revenue. You know, you have to sell 100 times more units when you sell it yeah. at 100 times lower the price. So that, come on, let's make our life easier and scale the sale force as we start selling and go for the customers who actually value what you deliver. Don't yeah. go for everybody. It's no money in serving every Tom, Dick, and Harry in the market. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, Pete knows I carried a lot of grief at our uh, former company for, um, you, you for updating. You carry a lot of grief in general. <laughs> for <laughs> updating our rate card. And I, I priced it to a point where I think the top 10% of all of our customers, and we had at one point 43,000 customers that I was looking at. Uh, all these different products. We priced it at the top 10%, just so that we would say, hey, anyone below that's playing below rate and you need to bump them up. And then it gave them guidance on how to renew and uh, renew accounts and stuff like that. And they immediately said, the reason why they're losing money is because the rate card was updated, which hadn't been touched in 20 years. And I'm like, how is that possible, guys? 90% of all the customers out there pay more or pay less then what the rate card is out there, we're losing money because, you know, of course, the, the easiest fallout was the pricing guy. You know, hey, the price is set wrong. I'm like, no, I've got, I, I had enough data to, sh I was very confident in what I was bringing to the table. But of course, you know, the pricing was wrong. And, and therefore, there was a lot of uh, debate against that. So I think anyone in pricing, you're just going to carry a lot of grief and just know that everyone's going to be against you. Sales are not. Pete, you got something to say, it looks like. Well, yeah, I do. Go grab some O2. All right, let's, <laughs> let's talk about, the, let's talk about the, the business environment that we were thirsty for knowledge. We were a classified advertising business, mm -hmm. right? So we were selling eyeballs and we're transforming over into a software business. Two business models going and we were trying to shift over to the software. And we were a, a bolt-on company where, oh, we came up with an innovation. Let's charge more for it. And let's have a, uh, a rate card that's 30 pages long. You know, there's two reasons why people don't buy. They aren't sufficiently disturbed or they don't understand the offer. And they were definitely confused. That's where I, I came across Tim's book and the, the bundling chapter. And we're trying to figure out how can we combine these like things that have a low marginal cost that we could just group together and sell the experience. And that's where the, you know, the bundling, you know, came in. So instead of selling 400 things, maybe we whittled it down to three. I don't know if we ever totally simplified the whole thing, but that was the basis of the book that that's what I got out of Tim. And for that, I'm, I'm grateful. And then I turned it over to Jamie and then he complicated everything from there on. <laughs> Yeah, so as a, so as a, so Tim as an entrepreneur price it as high as you can 
right? That's what you said. Yeah. Get as much money as you can. So now, but the problem is then when you migrate into a successful entrepreneur, my, that company might move into, you know, a middle market, you know, have enough customers and scale that there probably needs to be some sort of guidelines on pricing, right? Because if you price it the same way, especially when we were at, we would price one hospital, we'd sell it for 20 times X what another hospital is paying for. And then when they switch, you know, when those, those HR guys switch from one company to another, they'd be like, what the, so, you know, that, that was the problem we were dealing with is that we priced it as high as we could. And therefore we had no price discipline at all. How do you go about handling that and that conversion? I see that problem often, especially when a company starts to cross the hundred million range in revenue. And that's when they have to say, Hey, this wild West of going for whatever we can in good enough. And you got to start to rationalize and provide some defensible reasons to why your price for one hospital is four times the price of the next hospital without that defensible reason. Well, like you said, the people buying are going to switch between companies and they're going to get angry. I call it price contagion where you got some bad prices out there in the market that are undefensible. The good, the good customers learn about that low price. And then they say, Hey, I demand that low price. And suddenly your revenue from your biggest customers plummets because you have no defense price contagion evil evil part of this yeah and we i think we brought you in at one point right at, at the company we were at but we were at 800 million before we decided to bring in price discipline <laughs> so think of the chaos that i mean at one point i think we had 112,000 uh you know clients when i when when i was there it was like 43 when i left it was like 16,000. that just shows you the trend yeah. We're headed. Yeah. So other companies, though, you start to see this huge variation between the large and the small customer or between the Texas seems to get lower prices for for manufactured uh, goods that go into your house. Don't know why. Barbecue. Have, it's got to uh, be the barbecue. Garage doors, windows, <laughs> tiling yeah. of roof. Yeah, but. Yeah. Anyway, you see these variations and then you have to start putting some stop gaps. One of the, say at the hundred million range and above, one of the goals of, the, of a real pricing group is to come up with three levels. One is like the super high list that you don't expect anybody to buy it, but that's what you can actually share with people that say, what's your price? It's a million bucks. The other one is way much lower. It's like, what do I actually expect from this customer in this situation, buying this group of products, offering services. And then finally, a floor. Salesperson, you go down here, you're going to have to talk to the CEO because we don't like that. And yeah. we need these three levels out there. And too often pricing stops at, here's my new list. Here's my new updated list. It's like, eh, that's not good enough because it's meaningless. Everybody knows that list is meaningless. Yeah. Or here's my average. Well, great. I'll just go a little bit below it. Oh, wait, I'm hemorrhaging revenue. So you ha- actually have to have a realistic viewpoint of what you can communicate in budgeting, what you can communicate and where, where you should negotiate. And when do you start saying no, you can go walk away. Yeah, I mean, the, that was the problem we had. I did that same exact strategy, the three levels. You know, we had the, the bottom level we called, those are the people that we should walk away from uh, at renewal time, or they got to they gotta pay more because they're paying so little that it was actually costing us money to serve. 
and then the top level, those are the guys that renew what you can, but you've got freedom to, to renew them for like 40% less. And then everyone else, this is your range. And if you want to go below that range, you have to get approval on it. The problem was nothing was ever, you know, it was, there was no incentivization of the, the bottom guys that were paying nothing and getting the most value for the sales rep to try to upsell them. Because there's also another factor in here in terms of pricing, your company overall. So if your company overall is suffering, even though those companies should have been paying more, they're going to look at it and say, well, we were paying, we were paying this amount and got double, even more than what we were getting now. So now you're saying, hey, I should be paying a lot more. It's like, it was embarrassing what you were paying. It's still embarrassing now, but to them, it seems like a price increase that's not justified. How do you handle that when the company is on the downturn and you're trying to increase prices for the people that should have been paying 12 times more? Now you're just trying to get them to pay three times more. I mean, how would you go about handling that dilemma? Because that was a dilemma that I was faced with multiple times. You got uh, several problems there. One is the, the, the pathway, the runway of getting that poor paying customer up to where they need to be and providing enough evidence that says, I'm sorry, you were paying me 10 cents on the dollar. You should be paying me 80 cents on the dollar. All other customers like you are paying me 80 cents on the dollar. That's a big leap in year one. So we're going to take it in increments, but that's where we're going if you want to continue the relationship. That's like a technical, tactical approach. Yeah. The real question is, what does the company want? You can look and find company examples that are just purely after market share. Some are just purely after how many name tags do I have on my wall of customers that I can claim. Yeah. And other people are like, how much money did I make? Show me the money, show me the profit. And the CEO, he or she, is the one who has to decide what, what they're after. And if they can't decide, you're going to go to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. So indecisiveness means you're going to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. And honestly, this is a CEO decision. Yep. It's like you can't, a marketing manager can't say, I want to do this. And the salesperson says, but I want to do that. And finance is saying, well, you know, just let make everything you got to balance this and the person who's your center weight is the ceo who says my goal is this and what pricing's job is is to help enable the ceo reach the goal if it's like i need to hit my revenue numbers because i'm valued as a multiple of revenue then the goal is, is to find out the best way to fund the maximum revenue any way you can <laughs> if the goal is like a ups i'm going to wreak more efficiency out of the facilities i have then the question is, is, okay, where can I raise the price? And UPS, I don't know if you see them, they're doing very well in the market. Oh, yeah. We, yeah. We're talking about legacy business. One of the other things I, going back when we grabbed Tim's book was we had a, a big base of transactional business and we were trying to get it more into a subscription business. Yep. And getting back to bundling you know, we took these customers that were paying this legacy business that was paying 10 cents on a dollar. We were grouping products together to try to get more annual dollars out of them in a subscription. What are some of the rules of bundling that you look at, Tim, coming, coming from the book where it makes sense or it doesn't make sense? Um, there's two groups in there that I want to hit on. One of them is yeah. versioning, good, better, best. 
and you kind of want to have three in the good, better, best versioning and the best. And if you want to you add in a fourth, the super best, you'll find about one to 2% of the people pay for the super best, even though they'll never use all the functionality of it. And the idea is, is the good is simply good enough to enter the market. The better is it has the bells and whistles to run your basic business. And the best is it's got everything, everything you can imagine. And most of your market will end up, or the research shows, they tend to end up buying the better as the dominant one. Then separate from versioning, where you're trying to group up all of these individual things into product groups and a good, better, best type stuff, mm-hmm. um, you got bundling. And bundling actually comes in three separate flavors, so two, unfortunately. I'm sorry, pricing is not easy. Um, we got you. <laughs> hey, I, I love it. So go, your good, better, best is my, one of my favorite strategies. And one of the bundling studies looked at bundling from a price bundling, which is distinct from volume bundling or feature bundling. And in price bundling, the way to think about it from an economic view is you've got one group who really likes apples and not oranges. And the other group who really likes oranges and not apples. But I'm going to put them in the fruit as a service market, make them buy oranges and apples at this lower price, but I'll get more customers in there. This is how Microsoft took over Office. And you'll see that approach often. Now, that's distinct from saying you were buying uh, my basic stuff. I need you to buy this next thing up. I'll tell you what, I'll give you a discount if you buy everything. And that'll be my bundled volume discount. So I'm giving you a discount on buying more stuff from me. The third one is, what is, I'm talking to you on an iPhone. What is an iPhone? Is it a computer? Is it a phone? Is it a email device? I don't know. It's everything. It's been featured bundled into lots of things. And that's a totally different economics. There you're looking at cost savings for putting it all into one device rather than making you buy, remember those Palm Pilots? Oh yeah, Palm Pilots. (laughs) Pete probably still has one, right? No, I have you Newton. A Newton? Oh my word. So what you're really looking for, though, is what drives costs for the company and what drives value for customers and how that customer segmentation plays out in the market. Is it distinct or is it along a continuum? Is it two-dimensional? Is it five-dimensional? Is it a thousand-dimensional? What does it look like? And that tells you how to set your pricing structure. A company brings out Wiglaf. What do you do when, when somebody hires you and you come out to a company Give us a little, you do workshops. How long is the time, depending on the project, I guess. But uh, what, what do you offer? Let's give you a little plug here. Uh, like every long entrepreneurial company, there's been a few pivots in my life. They started out as workshops because that's as much as I can get. I'm like, hey, it's food. I need to eat. But nowadays, our sweet spots are doing uh, projects of a, like a pricing transformation trying to reduce the amount of discounts and unqualified price variances and rebates out in our market and show the salespeople what they could be selling at, provide the right incentive structure for the salespeople to sell what they should be selling at and reorganize the entire way at which pricing is managed. So that Excel data jockey sitting in the corner, you actually have a pricing person who's helping to drive continuous improvement. That's project one. The other project is I got a new product. Tell me the price. Go do the research. Get back to me. Two different problems. Either it's existing business and they need to improve it or they got a new product. I don't know what to do with it. Who should you 
work directly with. I think a lot of time, uh, especially with what I would see from you was the filter that was given to you was completely biased and not data-driven. It was what they wanted you to produce, but it was sort of like they kept me away from you as much as possible (laughs) because they wanted to use your stuff to maybe combat what I was working on. Unfortunately, they didn't understand that I had your book. I was doing, you know, I was like, but who should you be working with? I would imagine like the product data people and, and sales too, right? And marketing, all, all inclusive. With tech companies, it turns out that it's going to either be the sales commercial officer or the finance officer yeah. generally, okay? Uh, because they're the ones with power. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be a little sad here. Too often you find the marketing department is in the cups and pins business. You know, they're not actually quantitative thinkers they can't do it sometimes they can very true yeah if jason was here i'm sure he would agree with you wholeheartedly that's why that's why so yeah that's why he's left he didn't want to be here because we knew we were going to bad mouth him (laughs) Uh, hates marketing but you'll find pricing always involves three sets of decision makers finance sales and marketing and my job as a pricing expert or even if you're internal and you're the pricing VP, your job is to get the alignment between those three entities to move forward according to the CEO's top goal. Yep. It's great. That's so complicated. And so, you know, when a company gets to a certain size, it's, it's not an easy task because everyone's got their own opinions. And when, when somebody owned pricing for, you know, 13 years to price on their own, they don't like guidance. They don't like rules. They like freedom. Um, and so that's well, where it becomes difficult. Well, isn't that part of a company transformation too? I mean, you're going from classified ads to software, and you're also going from a, a sales-driven company to a product-driven company. So if sales- uh, Is it really product-driven or is it more finance-driven? Because at a certain point, when a PE firm buys you, you're finance-driven. I don't care what you yeah. think. You could say, oh, I'm product-driven. It, only if it makes sense <laughs> and only if right. dollar and cents make sense or if we can sell you off, uh, does it make sense? And if that's the case, you're a product company until we sell you to make money. But um, let's be real. It's sales or finance, I think. So I agree with you, Tim, and what you said, sales or finance. They will mm-hmm. always have different opinions. It's like pricing is this offspring child of an unknown father <laughs> where everybody thinks they... Everybody wants to claim it if it's doing well, and nobody wants it if there's a if there's a question about it. You know, it's just it should be there should be a chief pricing officer in almost every company. I think somebody who bridges that gap and owns that all the way through the entire organization. But to me, it's an afterthought, and that's the problem. And in most companies, it's a the market sort of de, the markets in their opinion, the market determines how it is, which means the sales guys are determining on the pricing and. We're negotiating against ourselves 90% of the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's not true. Uh, the market doesn't just purely decide. Yeah. Pricing is a decision. If the market purely decided, then you just have auctions and all the time. Or Wouldn't you know, need sales reps. You right? wouldn't need salespeople. <laughs> that isn't true. And yeah. what you say communicates how much money you can get from the market. So it's yeah. all there. Yeah. I agree. So how do you handle this? So... 
especially in software companies and any type of company, you have two clients, similar clients that are paying around the same amount, right? But one client needs a lot of handholding. Uh, they have a lot of customizations and things of that nature that needs a lot of servicing work. How do you go about either handling that? Uh, you know, some companies don't think about services and just include it as, a, you know, they call it a customer success manager or whatever it is. And some companies add on, you know, a services component. How do you go about handling that and pricing it out so that you're not bleeding? Because what that is, is company A that's using it, company B is funding that work because company B is very profitable, whereas A is not. And overall, we might look half as profitable as we should if we just had two company Bs. Yeah, you got to map out the customer journey and the customer success manager journey. Is it an onboarding problem? And you need to have some sort of onboarding service for all of them. And then is there, after that onboarding, what is the continued service level that you should be giving? Then you can either do versioning, you know, basic service, premium service, super premium service, where you provide more service of whatever ways you can package it up. By the way, divorces have even been sold as a fixed price packaged up. We'll do this. So you can price anything as a service if you want to. Um, not that I've had to imbibe in that market. But... <laughs> I, think, I think it should be on whatever marriage you're on. Your third one should be cheaper than your first. Is there, is there a, uh, you know, a ticker that tells you what the fixed price model is for a divorce today um, and going tomorrow? And you know, well, Chicago business ran the story about the $10,000 divorce. He fixed price it and sold it ten thousand dollars. He found his business was doing better. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, but you got to think about what is the services I need. How do we do this? Uh, and how do I charge them more? There's this case study I make my students go through at DePaul, and they hate this case study. They just hate it. Uh, they kind of hate all my case studies, but that's a separate problem. It's a Harvard case study. Mm -hmm. Where the yeah, where the uh, the prices are varying greatly between all the customers. And the CEO says, we need to cover our private equity loan that we just got. And I need to uh, uh, drive more revenue. And by the way, our cost just went up 10%. And so they, they said, what should we do to drive more revenue? Salesforce says, if you give me 10% price flex, meaning discount range, yeah. I can drive the revenue up 25%. Uh, if he, and then the other guy says, let's not pass through this 10% cost increase because that's going to drive people away. We're already more expensive than the next person in the market. Meanwhile, the cost, that particular company provided the greatest number of services in the market, the greatest amount of customization. It was leaving money on the table right and left. And I asked the students, so what do you want to do? What should we do? Well, they usually say, well, let's go for revenue. So let's not raise the prices with cost and let's also not let's allow price flex and my salespeople can sell more. You do the math, you realize the company is going to lose like 30 million in revenue. It just doesn't work, mm -hmm. which is why they don't like it. But, yeah. <laughs> but you got to look at those numbers and just make a rational case. What do you expect if these things happen? Oh, and by the way, the actual company did do both of those things. And the actual company did see revenue actually decrease in a few years. And then finally they said, no, this is stupid. We got to reverse course. Oh, so you know who the company is even in this case study, right? Oh, yeah. And the company still exists today. Interesting. I'm fascinated by that. I, I would love to, to take the, the, the case study. I'm going to have to take the course.
Um, okay, so so in terms of that, it, it, I guess your answer there is it all depends, right? It all depends on how much one one company is doing over another in terms of services, right? Like if you think it's gonna, if you, I guess if you set it up correctly, if you get them to pre-sales, you map everything out. Um, then you can you can price out the overall arrangement in a better way. If you shortcut the pre-sale sort of uh, deep dive, or the client basically just fibs to you, which, is, by the way, I would say the latter is what happens more often than not. Is that the, the shortcuts are done on the pre-sales mapping, and the client or the client says, "Yeah, we don't have that many needs," and then they're the most neediest customer around. How do you go about handling that? I guess at one point you just have to sit there and say, are we going to fire this customer or not? Right? Or you have contractual statements saying, this is how much service you can get. We can do more. You just have to pay us. Yeah. I think that's key. I think in almost every contract, you got to say, here are the allotted amount of hours you get. Yeah. Uh, that expire every quarter, every month. So you can plan accordingly. Um, but that is a dilemma. And that's something that's out there for our listeners all the time, I know. People are struggling with that right and left. Um, and then the other question is, I think personally, it's switching costs, right? When you're dealing with renewals, price elasticity is uh, really dependent on switching costs, right? Uh, that's why software as a service works because the majority of the case, it's very expensive to switch. So there's a lot of clients that buy software that hate their software company vendor, but they stay with them because it might take them three years to get back to hating the new vendor. You know what I mean? It's a, but how yeah. do you, how do you go about on renewals, pricing things out and renewal stand, standpoint when there's low switching costs? That's where you have some pricing power. You can start to raise prices year over year. If there's you have a, high switching costs. Yes. Yeah. But if you have low switching costs, it's the exact opposite, right? That's where you have to keep more aligned directly with what the competitive offer is on the market, yeah. which will, you know, always be uncertain what it is. But yeah. And then, go ahead, Pete. Tim, uh, when when you go in and help out a company, about what what size employees are they? How many employees at the company, and what revenues? Oh, uh, we've helped out companies. In the startup phase, up to the fifteen billion dollar company, one of our companies that we're actually serving is Kim China, the largest global company on the planet. Granted, it's just a division of Kim China, but you know it's Kim China, right? So the, these the typical company when they bring you in, why haven't they figured it out? What are, what what hump are you helping them get over? What are the obstacles you're helping out with? So this, this actually harks back to something Carney was talking about earlier. Why isn't pricing considered earlier? We should have chief pricing officers. There's actually a book making the claim that, that he should, that the company should have a chief, chief pricing officer. And then sure enough, two years later, he was the chief pricing officer of a company in the Netherlands. So pricing as a field is still relatively new. It's like, I hate to say it, but it's, where, it's at the stage that supply chain management was 20, 30 years ago. And people are just now waking up and realizing, I don't have to give this stuff away. I can actually charge for it. And even if I am like choosing to give it away, I need a strategy to think about how I'm going to extract value in the future because I can't run for free forever. So where does that come from? 
a lot of companies are hesitant to bring you in because they have to admit they don't know what's going on. If they have to admit what they don't know what's going on, then why are they employed? You know, a lot of senior leadership uh, I've seen are hesitant to bring in somebody like you because of insecurities. Do you, do you see that out there? I see it. It's one of my barriers for marketing, to be frank with you. You asked earlier, who's my key customer? Is it sales, marketing, or finance? Answer, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what size company do I work with? Answer, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, it, and uh, then the issue is, is, when does the company decide that this pricing problem is big enough for them to really take off? It's a strategy question for the CEO of that company, honestly. When they start yeah. to say, we need to do something. Uh, half the time I'm pulled into a large global corporation, it's because one of the top three consulting firms, strategy firms, said, you need to do something in pricing. And then they said, I don't know what they're talking about. Let's bring in an actual expert who knows how to get this done, get it done. And then I help them get her done, you know, structure it and such like that. Uh, the other half the time, it's the CEO, him or herself, decided, we need, we need to change our marketing from just simply shake it, and bake it, and put it out there and sell it into we have a product strategy, we have a market strategy, we have a price strategy, we have a go-to-market strategy, and we're, we're getting more professional marketing rather than just simply being a sales opportunity. And that's when another area where I get pulled in. The final part is, you know, got a new product, need to price it. That's that's more cut and dry, right? I mean, that's not cut and dry, but it's more of an easier task to handle. Because I think in the other ones, it, pricing is so political in a company. That's what I'm saying. If you don't yeah. have a founder-driven company like our guest last week, we had Justin Roth of The Machine on, and he says he doesn't even mess with a company that has a salaried CEO because it's a waste of time. I mean, that's... That's his opinion, dealing with all the politics. You have to spend so much time selling everybody that this is the right thing and get past the insecurities. I was just wondering if there was a sweet spot for you that you found it easier. My go-to-market strategy is to do as many podcasts like the sass holes as possible because you're <laughs> <Yeah>. awesome. <laughs> well, I would say also, wouldn't you want it? You would want to interact and get as much data as possible, right? And, and work with the data experts because that, that's where you're going to see the trends and, and be able to build the algorithms depending on the data. So when we do our transformation, we pull two years of data pool. We create uh, lots of box plots, box and whiskers plots, price to yep. market segment plots. We then try to tease out what are the actual variables driving variation in price. And often it's not what people think it is. And sometimes people are shocked by how big a variation it was. This is one company where the price average had a variance of 50% with a maximum of double the average price and minimum of 95% lower than the average price. I mean, it's just like, do you realize how chaotic this environment is? How do you control this? Uh, putting facts on the table from a data analysis of two years enables you to hold that reality meeting. That's a polite yeah. word for this culturally yeah, acceptable. Yeah. yeah. Um, and from that reality meeting, you can then drive the hard question for management and what are you going to do about it? Here are some hypotheses of how to improve it. Which one of these are you willing to walk down the line with me to actually fix? So, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's I've I've lived it, I've breathed it, I, I love it. The pricing side. I mean, I always 
I always, I, I, the one thing I always said was, especially in vaporware and software, is you need to agree to one, uh, the smallest economic unit of value that you can, that you're delivering within the company. And then that is your tangible asset that you can create a pricing module off of. It's, it's just so political that for, 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 for a company, when you get to a certain size, just trying to do anything in that area, they would, uh, another division would bring you in with a very sub-selected amount of data and say, well, Tim's saying do this. And I'm like, well, Tim doesn't have all the data. I'm sure he agrees with what I'm doing here, but you're not giving him all the data. Then they brought in McKinsey and McKinsey's basically said, do what this group is doing, which was me and a, a couple others. They're doing it right. And then they bring in another company. It's like they just are trying to find whatever bias, whatever shoe would get, allow them to say, hey, this works. This is right. Yeah, what you're doing is wrong because I believe this is, I believe this is what the pricing should be. When I think a pricing person should be an open book and let the data drive where the data drives and, and give their uh, interpretation of the data, but it should be data first. Every pricing professional I talk to describes one of their jobs as being highly quantitative. You got to do all this math. You got to do what's nowadays called machine learning and artificial intelligence. What yeah. used to be called statistics. It's statistics. You, <laughs> yeah. They use the word R and Python all the time. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Can, yeah. yeah. You got it. So cool. But you got to go through that because you have to be able to tell the story of the data. What are the facts actually telling you? What is that story of the facts telling you? But that's not enough. You also have to go around and talk to every single key decision maker and let them speak to you. Mm-hmm. So that they can tell you what their hypotheses are, and you can show them what their data, whether or not their hypothesis is true or not. Yeah. And so it's like these multiple angles, again, collecting facts, building an information mosaic, delivering an intelligence assessment. Yeah. You got to go all of them. If you only go with one, you, then you're going to get what that one data point set. You know, it shall not be a fully complete story. Uh, the other part of uh, pricing people is they are natural diplomats. They have to be. Rarely can pricing force sales to do something or marketing to do something or finance to do something. Generally, as a diplomat, we're trying to create a vision of a future which all parties can say, I can live in that. I'll, I, that makes sense to me. And so you have to be extremely diplomatic, have a high emotional intelligence because you're going to irritate people and you're going to have to be working on it a high level of of confidence in what you're doing coupled with humility and knowing maybe you missed something and it's you know that to me is the difference between arrogance and confidence confidence Mm -hmm. includes humility arrogance excludes it so I think also, you know, to quote a great show that's out there, by the way, Ted Lasso, I'm going to give it a plug on Apple Plus. Uh, a pricing person you needs know. to be a goldfish, uh, which they have the smallest memory around. 30, uh, 30 seconds, they forget it. Because you need to have a backbone because there's going to be meetings in, that you're going to have inside a corporate world that you're just going to, people are just going to disagree with you and be very blunt about it. And you need to have a backbone and just forget it and move on and know that what you're doing the data is backing it up and you believe in it and you don't need to worry about the political onslaught that's going to be there. Pete, I think you were, I think you were involved in some some debates in my office yelling at me about my pricing models. Um, 
and and here we are, Carney. With, here, yeah, he's still mad about it. Not mad, <laughs> not mad. It's all but just politics. What was your uh, your uh, calculator called again? The peel points. In, oh. Engagement. I had the engagement. That's it. That's it. I had a way of uh, figuring out how to pay customer success people, other than subjective reasons. But that's a whole nother yeah. show, Carney. It's what a whole nother show. The, what else? We're coming up on our time. We're coming up on our time. So we asked for an hour. You gave us enough. I'm a huge fan. When COVID is over, I'd love to get get together for coffee since we're close by, and just talk pricing. Okay. I'm not going to your neighborhood. Oh, come on. Or we can have a beer. I mean, or we but... can have a beer, coffee, or beer, any of that. Yeah, not, you just not let me that know. Neighborhood. Why not? That neighborhood's great. We can always also go to Humboldt just Wicker Park. Park. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go from Lake Forest to Humboldt Park. Pete, I, what, I, I know, know you're a snob you now. Go, but. You go from Humboldt Park to Lake Forest, not the other way around. Yeah, Tim I and ride, I are keeping it real. I ride my bike up to Lake Forest and back three times a week. Come on. Do you really? Which path do you take? Uh, I go both on the North Shore Channel Trail. And then I come back down south on the North the, Branch Channel. The North Branch, the one by Gompers and all of that, right? Yeah, That's right yeah. by my house. Yeah. yeah, you're one of those Peloton warriors who leaves your Starbucks all over the place. Thanks a lot, Tim. Uh, I'm one of those guys <laughs> over 50 who needs to make sure I keep exercising or I ain't going to work uh, out well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those 50-year-olds <laughs> watching you ride by. What's the name of your book, Tim? Let's, let's get that out there before we piss each other off. Pricing done right. Be the book I suggest people buy if they don't know anything okay. about pricing, but they need to get something done and they want to know what that would look like. Do you have to be a DePaul student to go to your class or can you uh, take your class? What do you think he's going to say? Unfortunately, you kind of have to be a DePaul student. <laughs> I, I see you're wearing the GSB uh, shirt. You know, that, that I got two of those. Those are... Uh, that's back when I enjoyed the name. I don't like the name Booth. I love I love GSB. I, I had issues with that too, but then you know I accepted it. Goes to, they sold it to the donor. Yeah. I mean, what is the Sears Tower going to be called next? Yeah, it's still Sears. It's still Sears. <laughs> you just said it. The Willis Tower. What is it going to be called next? You said what is the Sears Tower going to be called next? <laughs> it's like Sox Park. You know, you can call it Comiskey. You can call it. I'm a Sox fan. Call it Comiskey, yeah. you can call it guaranteed rate, the cell, cellular. It's Sox Park. This is, this is what happens when you let a pricing guy and a finance guy go at it. Mm. Tim, Pete, Tim, you're CEO of Wiglaf, Wiglaf Pricing, and that's W-I-G-L-A-F.com, correct? Yes, my Beowulfs. Beowulfs, okay, got it. Tim, can you suggest somebody else to come on the show so we can witness their genius? Uh, oh, you're really, you're really thinking hard there. By the way, you've given us a tour of your home. It seems great. You've been walking the entire I, time. I am. Uh, I'm getting seasick. If I if I could, I would suggest you talk to uh, Holden of Holden Advisors. Read Holden. Okay. He's an awesome guy. He's very smart. I was going to suggest you talk to Manu Carucho. Caracino. Sorry, I still have a hard time saying his last name. He's Spanish. However, yeah. he passed in the last month from a motorcycle oh. accident. No, from a car oh. accident. Yeah, he was one of the few people who I actually trusted in the world of price, along with Reed Holden. So, got there it. you go. All right. Thank you, Tim. Carney? Carney, I like, I like it when you're like that. 
That's your famous Wi-Fi going. Tim, he's up on a telephone pole right now. Did I hit the mute button again on my microphone? In Hooterville. I must have hit the mute button on my microphone. My kids are driving me nuts right now. They're all on spring break, so they're making a ton of noise and arguing. And one's wearing high heels. She's a six. Walking around the house, of course. Let's let this poor man go about his way on his 10-speed driving through Lake Forest. Carney. Yeah, so hey, thanks for coming, Tim. It's been a pleasure, huge fan. And for those listeners at Sassholes, reach out to Tim for any pricing questions you have. Bring him into the company uh, that you work for, and uh, he can do wonders. We love you, Tim. Great books, great books. We're going to put the links on the podcast and the show below. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, because if people aren't listening, we can't help. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, follow us on Twitter. Cue the non-copyrighted music. Dude, you can hear me? I hit a button underneath. <laughs> is it loud as can be? Oh, it's loud as can be. That won't make the outtakes. Uh, does this go down? I think this is called... Oh, I'm going to... What do you think of these, Pete? What? Huh? I look like an Italian uh, motorcyclist. You look like you should be selling rings underneath the Eiffel Tower. I I bought um, I bought my daughter a. Eiffel Tower under the Eiffel Tower from for like 20 uh, euros and uh, inside the Eiffel Tower the bigger ones were going for like 50. I bought it from some some uh, Sudanese refugee yeah complete gypsy and when I bought it I was there with Jablo and Marla and when I bought it because that was what my daughter wanted um, you wanted your daughter wanted a Jablo no she wanted Eiffel Tower. We still have it. Um, the cops came and broke it up, and I was like, holy crap, I hope we're not under trouble. They're like, nope, you just got yourself a free Eiffel Tower. And the, the Sudanese guys ran away. And while I was walking back to the cab, I would just see this guy like in the periphery sort of following and hunting me down. And I'm like, I didn't do anything wrong. And all of a sudden he comes out of the crowd out of nowhere and he's like where's my 20 year i'm like here go leave me alone don't stab me i didn't steal anything the cops gave it to me and said you got it for free um but i was like telling jablo and marla I'm like, we gotta get out of here i think i'm gonna get i think we're gonna get stabbed for buying this illegally you're uh you're a wild one party here's tim 
MJ Smith connecting the audio. I would put his hair up against yours, Carney. Oh, yeah, he's got some... We got some competitive hair. I like that. That is... He doesn't have the glasses. <laughs> Looks like I ate Elton John. got the school Wi-Fi, I'm sure. I, I'm impressed with your Wi-Fi, Carney, I think. What, are you, like, on the pole right now, or? I am, um, I sort of set up a shop where I stand and talk, because it's better than sitting and talking. Yeah. And then, um, for these podcasts, and then I actually just, I hardwire in, so, because I'm right next to the modem. Hello. Hey, Hello. We Hello. were commenting on your uh, your picture before you got on. Your hair was uh, was going to compete with mine. Uh, it looks yep. like you got a haircut since then. We, well, we got... I have a friend who shoots uh, rock stars. He's shot my photo. Ah, oh, gotcha. Nice. No, that's sweet. Tim, you in Chicago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just south of y'all in a beautiful rainy gray spring yeah. day of Chicago. Where where south are you? Humboldt Park. Oh Humboldt? Okay. You're not there. I'm in I'm in I used to live in Humboldt. I used to live over there in uh, Artesian and Lemoyne. They oh. called it West Wicker, but it was really Humboldt. Um, yeah, people people for a long time did not like acknowledging they lived in Humboldt Park. They wanted to yeah. say they lived at Wicker Park, the Ukrainian village. It's like yeah, okay, so my neighborhood is kind of Ukrainian, kind of Polish, but let's face it, that's how much fun. I live in Mayfair now, so I'm just a little oh, bit no. Yeah. I, I grew up in Hermosa Park, and I fought my whole life to get the hell out of there. I don't know what you two are doing there, but you don't stop at the stop signs. Unless they gentrified it, that's what I hear. Well, no, uh, the white border means it's optional, right? The white border on the stop signs, doesn't that mean it's optional? Now, I told my mom that, and she actually believed it. When she was saying, why you're rolling through all these stops? I'm like, no, mom, the white means uh, it's optional. She goes, I've never heard that. Is that true? Yeah, sure. Whatever you want to believe. <laughs> it, it's all optional. You do not stop when you're down there. That's all. Yeah. I don't care what you guys tell me. Okay, Tim, we got a really hard intro here. Because you're a big listener to the Sassholes, and you're going to tell everybody you are. CEO Wigliff, is that how you pronounce it? Wigliff Pricing? I pronounce it Wiglaff, but I actually Wiglaff. don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it. Yeah. A-U-G-H-A-G. What does it mean? The most common question I get asked from people who actually are curious about having a fun time. Uh, in 2002, I was trying to name my company. And I got tired of listening to all these companies that are named after Greek gods. So I decided to go after somebody else, uh, Beowulf, and Wiglaf was Beowulf's advisor. Ah. I Mm. did not know that. The only people who know that are English lit majors. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't know that. Nor would I even think I could know that. 
English English lit majors, they're doing pretty well uh, with the uh, COVID payments and the unemployment. Uh. (laughs) All right, that's... uh... By the way, we both, uh, we have both shared your book to each other and back and forth, uh, at least one of your books, uh, just to give you an idea of how we have read your stuff and, and are sort of in agreement with it. So, and here we are. We're excited you're on the show. It's an honor and a privilege. You, yeah. you lie, but we love it. Hey, you're going to do the intro, or am I going to do the intro? I know the last couple of weeks I deferred to you, one, because I showed you, up late. Do you feel comfortable today, Jay? Yeah, I feel comfortable today. Yeah, go ahead. Take the, take the reins. All right. Good. One take, Tim. I love it. Yeah, Just beat great. the ball guy. Oh I'm going to go take a Dramamine, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy you both a beer. All right. When Pete we'll gets out of the house. Union Club. Yeah. All right. Perfect. Perfect. All right, guys. Later all right. on. Sorry about that, guys. No, but it's I all right. It's good. Oh, you no, do. It's okay. I, I, yeah, I thought this, this would be a good audio only, but then I thought, no, no, I got faces. Let's give you face back. But he yeah, only, he only takes a picture. He might take snippets of it. Well, he might do a snippet to, uh, to, to plug the show. But, you know, we don't I'm have the faces for video. Especially with that handlebar mustache. That's you there. Yeah, we're that humble part. Yeah, this will go well. <laughs> AGB. Thank you guys. Seriously. All right, bye. Thank you. Bye. Oh, and get me the link, and I'll post it on my social media. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. I do have 450 followers on LinkedIn. Perfect. All right. 450,000. Oh, look at that. Oh! Yeah, he did that, Carney. That's a pricing guy right there. Undervalued.